Ask Rotoman? We sure will. We'll ask Peter Kreutzer, the AskRotoman.com expert and Tout Wars commissioner, about the history of the Sweeney plan, Tout Wars, daily fantasy gaming, cool tunes, studs and duds, and it's all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April 21st. It's show number 19 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. As I said, we'll talk with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and Tout Wars, and we'll have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at how Scott Van Slyke's power could find its way into the L.A. lineup. And in our frequent flyers, Alex Becky looks at Giants catcher Andrew Susak, Giants pitcher Chris Heston, and the Mets catcher Kevin Plowecki. It's another big Tuesday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Ask Rotoman? You bet we will. And we're going to ask him about some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday edition, it's our feature expert interview with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and Tout Wars. Peter, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. Nice to be here. Uh, how many leagues are you playing in this year? Oh, um, I think I'm playing in four. I play in an AL, which is um, the American Dream League, which started in 1981 and has been running continuously. I joined um, like 22 years ago, I think, and... Um, it's uh, and I'm in first place there, so that's a good league right now. Uh, I play in a national league league, Tal Wars National League, um, which started in uh, 1996. I don't know or 1998 and um, 1998, and I'm in last place there, so that's not so good. Um, I play in the XFL, which is a this uh, bizarre mixed league, um, 15 teams. We draft. We have a $260 auction in November in Arizona, and then we have a 17-round reserve draft in the end of March. And um, we're in the. I'm partners with Alex Patton in that league, and we're we're um, in the middle of the pack right now. It's kind of a jumble. Um, Steve Moyer made a giant. It's a keeper league, so made a giant trade just before with uh, Ron Chandler just before the season and. Um, basically a dump trade before the season even started, and uh, so he's in first place and is likely to stay there all year. And um, and, I, and then I play in a league that started at, um, I had a message board at my website, askrotoman.com, back in the, in the, starting in the 90s, and we got a really good group of people there, and um, spam kind of killed the message board, but many of the people have migrated over to um, patentandco.com, uh, where, where we have uh, conversations about players. And um, one of the guys there some years back started a 20-team Yahoo League, um, which is a small roster, small reserve lists, um, and mixed league. And uh, I'm in the top third there. But um, it's, a, it's a fun league, mostly because it's guys who I've known just online for you know the, the last 15 or 20 years. It's, it's, uh, it's a good group. It sounds like you play more for fun than for profit. You know, it's uh, when when I started 
playing, when I started writing about this game, I, it was it it seemed like it was a gambling game. Like there had to be money on it for it to to make sense. Kind of like poker. Like you wouldn't sit down and play poker really without there being money involved. But um, as as the years have gone by, I found more and more that um, if you have the right group of people, the money is is really unimportant. That the the fun is in um, is in negotiating, working with people that you get to know and and you talk to, and um, that that part of the game is way more um, important than any money. And in fact, the money sometimes gets in the way because it it increases the stakes arbitrarily, and that really pride and doing a good job and um, having fun are much better. Um, I don't know. I want to say virtues, but they're they're much better qualities than than uh, than cash in a, in a lot of ways in terms of motivation. All the people I play with are friends. I don't play in um, any in any of these you know whole season games. I don't play with uh, mercenary intent. I, th- I think that's the the way to approach it. Of course, everybody's different, and if you want to play for money because you're good at playing for money and you you know you're feeding your family with it or paying your rent, I'm cool with that too. But I've always enjoyed playing the game because of the. For, I don't want to overstate it, but it seems like an interesting intellectual challenge to figure out new plans, to cope with things that are happening in season, to to be able to do the research on the players and so forth. It's a it's a nice outlet if you have those kind of interests that you want to you want to follow baseball closely, and this gives you a reason to do it at a higher level than somebody who just turns on the game on TV and uh, and just takes the word of the guy in the booth that uh, RBIs are the most important stat, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely not denigrating the, the gambler and um, the, those guys. I mean, and there are, some of those guys are, in, you know, incredibly smart and talented fantasy baseball analysts, and they know the game. I'm sure they know the game better than I do. But um, but I think I know the game better than as as well as anybody for sure, and the fun of the game for me is the, is the playing and not the not the not the you know not not the stakes. The stakes don't matter so much as the as the personal the personal parts of it. In fact, uh, it might even be deleterious to it because if there's a lot of money at stake and and you're chasing it, oftentimes the pursuit of money tends to bring out the worst in people. Absolutely. I mean, I I couldn't agree more. Peter, uh, you mentioned you were in the American Dreams League. I did an article at BaseballHQ.com during spring training about the Sweeney plan. And in researching it, I learned that the plan was first tried in the American Dreams League. Was that when you were involved in the American Dreams League? Uh, it, it did not. It's, it happened. Um, I played in a league with um, the first fantasy baseball league that I played in, um, Hugh Sweeney who the Sweeney plan is named after, was in that league, partners with um, a guy named Bruce Bouchel. And they were, they were better than everybody else. This was in the early, um, early 80s. And um, we, my, my partner and I were trying to figure out why. And they, seemed, they had these things they would do, like they would, they would load up on power speed guys, and they would... And they played in the American Dream League as well as oppo- as opponents, not as partners. And um, th- it was kind of through, I-, I knew of the Rotisserie League, but it was through Hugh and Bruce that I learned about the mechanics of the real Rotisserie baseball. This league I played in started at um, Inside Sports, which is, Inside Sports was the magazine that ran the first 
Dan Okrent's story about the Rotisserie League, and that was where it started. But for some reason, they they had a this bizarre format that they played, and um, so I knew Hugh, and I I spent some time with him in, at spring training, uh, in and it was and he's he's a quirky and um, weird guy, but he um, came up with the Sweeney plan, came up with it meaning that he stole the Sweeney plan from Bouchel. Bouchel um, thought, what would happen if you did this? And then Hugh did it and used it as an excuse not to actually make or return any phone calls for a whole year, um, which got him kicked out of the American Dream League. And, I, and, th- and that was how I got invited into the American Dream League, was by, because Hugh Sweeney was kicked out, not for Sweeneying, which we, is what we call it, but, um, but because... He didn't return any phone calls. He, he's a he's he's a funny guy, and he made everybody mad by like calling at midnight on Sunday night and making wives really angry and, and irritated that he was he had no boundaries. But then he got kicked out because he stopped making phone calls. And um, the the trophy in the American Dream League is not a baseball player. The top of the trophy is a telephone, and um, that was that's how far back we go. And, um, and Hugh got kicked out for that reason. So you, uh, you have a place in history as the guy who replaced the guy who first, uh, employed the Sweeney plan. It eventually did work in the American dream league. As I recall from my story, somebody, somebody, not him won the league playing, uh, the Sweeney plan or something quite like it. And one of the responses your league made was to change the rules to prevent the strategy from working, and primarily, I think you guys imposed a uh, an at bat minimum, so that you couldn't fill your roster with a bunch of guys who just weren't going to play to protect your uh, batting average. Were you in the league at that time, and why did the league take the step to prevent the Sweeney plan from working after it won? One thing to know is that the American Dream League is a four by four league, which makes it more manipulable. The cat- the the um, qualitative categories are more important and more manipulable than the. Um, than the quantitative categories. So um, what everybody recognized right away was that the Sweeney plan is a, if you have a decent, cheap closer, the Sweeney plan is a way you can always get into the money. It'll always pay, unless something, obviously, if something goes horribly wrong, it won't. But um, So we had one year, one of the guys was um, worked for Newsweek, and he was going to be spending the whole summer in Russia covering the Olympics. And um, he's a sports writer, and he said, "You know, we're gonna we're." He didn't say this before the draft, but he, after the draft, he said, "Yeah, the idea was I'm not going to be able to manage my team very closely. I'm just sweetieing. I'm, I, you know, I that's it's low maintenance. I can do this." So we added um, pitching limits and uh, innings pitch limits and at bats limits to try and keep the game a little less manipulable like you have to uh, you have to get to 500 5500 at bats you have to get to um 1100 innings pitched and so that your team has to resemble a little bit a real baseball team it's um a real american league baseball team that's why that's why we did it um the funny thing is that since then the very few teams have drafted a sweeney plan team we have one team this year who did it um but many teams because of their keepers, obviously look like they could go that way. And often what happens is they try to draft a balanced team because that's an easier way to win. But when you get a month or two in and you realize it's not working, um, switching to the Sweeney plan at that point is a good way of, of like, 
getting out of the cellar and into the middle or up to the up into the um, up into the money and that's a that it ends up being a um, a strategy for recovery if if things go wrong during the season and that's been used many times but it's used much more in in four by four than it is in five by five because the the counting categories are just so oppressive in five by five that it's it's a hard thing to pull off. Peter, you said one of the reason your league decided to impose innings pitched minimums and at-bat minimums was to make the experience more like real baseball. As an overall concept, Peter, how closely do you think fantasy baseball leagues should be organized to mimic or recreate that experience of, quotes, real baseball, especially the front office management part of it? Well, I, I think we when we started, we, we thought we were doing kind of a that it really was a baseball simulation and we really were like general managers managing our teams. And I think that experience has made us aware of just how far from the truth that is in terms of what a fantasy baseball team looks like and how it operates and how the and how we as general managers work. There's not that much similarity to what real general managers actually do. What I do think um Okrent got perfectly right in the in the original eight categories, and which 5x5 doesn't disrupt, is um, those aren't necessarily the best categories for defining baseball excellence, but they are really excellent at defining roles and usage patterns. So saves is a crummy category for determining who the best relief pitchers are, but it's a great category for determining who the closers are. And the, the, and that role has a has a value, and as as followers of the game, that has value. The move to add holds to saves, um, I can see the value of it in terms of identifying excellence. But I, but it it makes it a lot mushier. Like it's you're not you don't win for figuring out who's going to be. Or you don't win for figuring out who the backup closer is going to be if somebody gets hurt or. If that, if that is a skill, that skill is then devalued. And um, this, there's been a similar argument with us with this move to go to on base percentage from batting average. On base percentage is definitely a better marker of a player's hitting ability than batting average is. It's less variant. It's more consistent from year to year. Um, it better reflects a player's skills. But at the same time, it's less variable, and so it, it is more predictable. And in a way, it's a little more dull. Um, but I think overall, it values players who walk. Players who walk are—that's a skill that otherwise wasn't represented in fantasy baseball. On the hitting side, it is on the pitching side, and moving to on-base percentage addresses that in a in a positive way, I, I believe. But the arguments against it are that it's the batting average is what. People used to win the batting average title. Nobody ever has won the on-base percentage title, and that's uh, that's something of that's something that we lose if we we get more granular about it. I used to discuss these issues about what made the best scoring categories, and there was a there was a contingent of people at baseballhq.com, the the writers there, and the people who post on the forums at baseballhq.com as well about uh, that, that a really good fantasy league would have sort of sabermetric measures rather than uh, on-the-field metrics. And I always thought that part of the fun of the game was the fact that categories like wins and saves, they're, they're different kinds of things, and it's the variation 
that makes the game interesting if we if we just use those sabermetric categories which are highly predictable and highly repeatable for individual players it's kind of like uh, going to the racetrack everybody throws some money in a pot based on the form and then they all look around and say well the form says that you know jumping jack flash is going to win the second so who who picked jumping jack flash and they, and they don't bother having the horse race you know and uh, in a way the categories like home runs especially pitcher wins uh, lesser extent saves these are what give the game its unpredictability and the unpredictability of it it seems to me is what makes it fun yeah i i agree and it's um like nobody has said oh let's just use war to um to to calculate the winners even though that would be the best maybe the best evaluation we have of um, of a player's contribution during the season, but once you go that once you go that far that way, then you end up with basically it's a uh, it's a game of who gets hurt or who doesn't get hurt. And one, right. I, one of the problems I think with five by five is that five by five is definitely you have to have the at bats, you have to have the innings pitched in order to um, lead in those counting categories, and there are a lot of them. And I mean there there are. Uh, those categories are very important because there are more of them than there are the qualitative categories. In 4x4, four four, which is you know where Sweeney came in, you can actually dump out of two of the eight categories and, and have a winning team um, because you can dominate those other categories without piling up a ton of at-bats. And that's the, uh, you know, that's the magic sauce there um, for in-season recovery, for a plan before the season starts, um, there are, and there are other other ways to approach it as well. Um, my, I've got a pitching staff. I'm in first place in American Dreams League right now. My pitching staff is incredibly weak, um, partly because I drafted guys who were on the disabled list. But the but they're pitching well, they're, and those guys are pitching well. And I'm and um, and if that could happen all season long, and I could do just fine, even though I won't lead in in wins. And um, I hope that turns out not to be the case. But um, you have a, a lot more flexibility in, in a 4x4 four four than in 5x5 five five in terms of um, making do with what you have and trying to come up with a, with a, a way out of it. That, that brings me to a question. We've had the Sweeney plan. We've had the Lima plan. We've had uh, the uh, Lab- Labadini plan, which was that extremely like $1 per pitcher for nine pitchers plan. All of these plans seem to have been responded to either formally through rules changes or informally through strategic changes by people opposing it, and they don't seem to work that well anymore. Do you think there's ever going to be another Lima plan or another Sweeney plan in fantasy baseball as it's currently constituted that will surprise everybody and and be successful? That's a good question, and I I really don't want to say no, but um, and but given the regular our, our regular rotisserie rules, I think you're um, right that we've legislated out a lot of the oddity. Um, Going to five by five kind of kills the. I, I don't know. Doug Dennis Labadini's, you know, modified Labadini every year in in uh, in labor and um, and has had some success with it. And you know, it, it goes from year to year. It depends. Um, I think there's a lot of value in not spending on pitching, but it doesn't work if you don't get the right pitchers. That's the pitchers are there, though. That's the one thing that we know is that those cheap pitchers are there. Um, 
And will there be another radical plan like that? It it would seem not. It seems like we've we have legislated away a lot of the um, the 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 goofy um, visionary stuff that could happen. At the same time, like I don't think Labadini was particularly successful with the Labadini plan. It was no. It's, it's not like oh that was a great edge to anybody to spend only nine dollars on pitching. It was a great way to to get written about. And he and yeah. and he was his season wasn't a disaster. He might have he might have even finished in the in the money. I don't remember, but um, the the a lot of these plans, the Sweeney plan only works if you have cheap relievers to begin with. If you have to pay market value for relievers, you lose the advantage of um, spending half your money on pitching, um, and so. All of these are, are they're all interesting ways of looking at the player pool and deciding how to um, spend your money before the season starts. And in that sense, I think they're all still in play. The Lima plan was not even really a plan so much as a, um, a way of approaching player analysis that um, respected the proper value of players and did, uh, pitchers and didn't look at their role, which was, um, that was the radical thing, was to ignore the role and to just like load up on ERA and, and ratio or potential ERA and, ERA and ratio based on the component stats, which people weren't doing in, in 1996 or 1997 when Ron came up with that. People were, we would look at strikeout rate and home run rate, walk rate, but we didn't look at them as benchmarks for effective pitchers. And I think Ron's take there was very revolutionary. At the same time, though, it worked because you could load up a lot of middle relievers in your pitching and and win the ERA and ratio categories, uh, compete well in saves because you'd uh, lo- get a couple of decent closers and basically surrender wins. But you can't do it in five by five because you're also going to lose in strikeouts and it just puts you too far behind the eight ball. And as well, a lot of leagues started putting in inning pitch minimums, which meant that you really have to have three or four starters depending on the minimum, and uh, and that obliged you to carry more starters than you might otherwise want to do if you were playing one of these kind of uh, more extreme uh, strategic approaches. The first year um, Alex Patton and I were in labor, um, or the first year I was in labor, I guess, um, I think Alex had been in a couple of years before that, um, we, we Sweeney'd and we finished second in that year. Um, and the idea was just, there was no, mini- there was no, um, innings pitch limit, and we'd just load up on relievers and, and not spend the money on starters and um, and then load up on hitters. But it's hard to, any team breaks out, you you obviously have a natural cap on what you can, um, that was that was like 1994, 1995, and people weren't aware of it at that point, so um, it, it was fun, but it was, but it also meant that we knew in July that there was no way we could win because one team had broken out and had gotten ahead, and, and that's a little frustrating. I should say just before that Bruce Bouchel wrote a story that ran on Deadspin a couple of years ago called The Epic Story of a New Jersey Prosecutor Who Stole My Idea and Made Fantasy Baseball History, a very colorful telling of the whole story of Sweeney and his plan. It's, it's maybe the best 
piece of nonfiction writing about fantasy baseball I've ever read, and um, well worth checking out on deadspin.com. I mentioned that very story in my uh, baseballhq.com article. It's very funny, it's very lively, and it is a real insight into one of the great stories of uh, of the early days of fantasy baseball. It is terrific at deadspin.com. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer, AskRotoMan.com and Tout Wars. And Peter, you're a Tout Wars commissioner, one of the founders of the league, and this season, along with uh, your fellow uh, commissioners, you introduced a new league. It's called Tout X, and it's a league designed to broaden the reach of Tout Wars, dare I say, and try new formats. What was the plan this first year with Tout X? What, um, what's happened the last few years is that we've had almost no one drop out of Tout Wars. Um, so we, have, we added a, a fourth league a, few, a couple of years ago um, to a draft league. And, um, but we have lots of people who want to play in Tout Wars, Lots of people who are um, qualified to play in Tout Wars, and um, and we had a, a no easy way to get them into the into the game to get uh, younger people, people who were uh, we need people who have been professionally engaged for three years, and we were not be able to get those people into the leagues because um, we only had the four leagues and nobody was leaving them. So um, we talked about adding a head-to-head league, and we may do that in the future. Um, but the idea came up. Uh, the idea came up a few years ago. I came up with it, um, and then Jeff Erickson revived it when we were talking about this problem of not having the space. And he he suggested that this might be a good year to introduce the experimental league, where we um, we play around with different pr- game parameters to see what um, what could to try out things that might work. Uh, in the the other leagues or in fantasy baseball overall, um, it, the idea was just to kind of rethink the game in, in a way. And um, rather than actually come up with a new concept this year, um, he suggested that we let Ron run basically a Chandler Park game um, for experts in in uh, the tout, under the Tower Wars name and. Uh, See how that works as a year as a year long contest rather than just a simply month by month contest and uh, and that's what we did this year. Um, so Ron is running basically a Chandler Park game, um, but for the whole year rather than just for the for each month. Um, but rosters reset each month, which is the interesting and fun part of it. We'll see. I think when the the teams draft their March their uh, May rosters this coming week. Um, and and we were able to get ten new touts in, and uh, they were excited to play, and and um, did an incredible job of prep for this league that none of them had ever played anything like it before, which was um, kind of cool. And you got some women in. I talked with Laura Michaels recently about that. It was a another mandate you guys uh, tried to impose on yourselves to broaden the diversity in both age and gender and and uh, otherwise as far as uh, getting Tout Wars experts to more closely represent the uh, audience. And that, that was a success as well. You've got a couple of women in the in the league now, I know, and uh, certainly the, the uh, Tout X uh, roster skews you much younger than some of the other Tout Wars leagues. Uh, how have the players responded to it? What did they think? The, the Tout X players? Yeah, they've got the owners in the new Tout X league. What have you heard from them? They were all very, very excited to be invited in. Many of them had been pitching themselves for the last few years to try and get in. Some of them we called up out of the blue because they'd been recommended by people um, in the league. That's pretty much, we, we 
people who want to be in can let us know, and, and then we get recommendations from people in the league, and that's pretty much our screening process. Um, once people are qualified by their their length of time in the industry, so um, so they were all very excited, and as I and they prepped. Um, we had at at some point. Um, oh, we had somebody drop out of the at the last minute out of the uh, draft league, and the discussion was: should we invite one of the new Tout X people into? I'm sorry, out of the mixed auction league, and should we invite one of the um, tout Xers to play in that league or not? And um, Ron said that they were all prepping so enthusiastically that to pull them out at the last minute would both put the new person that we brought in at a disadvantage, and also um, they might be disappointed. So we we ended up opening that spot up to Joe Pasapia, who. Um, you know, just was able to step into a regular mixed league auction um, without any problem. So it was uh, the enthusiasm for for getting it right was um, palpable, as was the the feeling at the draft table, which was um, which was unusual and uh, and a little bit dark. But everybody managed to to keep their heads up and um, and do really interesting things that, in drafting these teams. In a, in a way that had never been done before, because they did a a, um, a live auction using the draft values from Chandler Park. So you weren't just taking Mike Trout first, you were taking Mike Trout at $47, and that wasn't the best bargain. So instead, somebody took Bryce Harper at $17 with the first pick, um, and that made for a very unusual and interesting play throughout the, throughout the, um, the 30 rounds of drafting. The uh, Tout X draft took place at the same time as the Tout Mixed Auction that I was a part of, and during one of our breaks, I went and listened in and looked at the draft board, and it was it was pretty interesting because, as you said, it was a snake draft, but with the salaries pre-assigned, creates all kinds of new value propositions and and uh, value tests, and these people clearly had other ideas about how this valuation process had worked, and now they they redo it every month as well, right? They they do, but um. For the first month, all the players are exclusive. You have only the players on your team. After this, they'll go to the regular Chandler re, um, Park roster resetting, which means that everybody could have, um, if there's somebody comes back and has a, a cheap value, everybody might roster that person, which is good, except that it doesn't differentiate you. You end up, everybody's tied for that roster slot. So um, right. that creates different issues in terms of who to roster and, and what the, the value propositions are. Um, but there, but the ro- players are shared between rosters, so it, it will be a different problem for, for the final five months. Have you guys had any thoughts about uh, next year's experimental format? I, you are changing formats every year. That's the plan. That right? is the plan. I have I have a format. I'm going to pitch um, very aggressively because I think it it um, could be an incredible amount of fun. It might be an incredible amount of work, but um, and I'm not going to tip it here just because uh, I because I think there's because I'm excited about it, and there's a few details to work out, but it would it would involve, I think, some new touts and a lot of, and maybe some old touts, and it'll be a game that oh. nobody has seen that'll um, that will do some things with real baseball um, that will be could be fun. Anyway, I don't know if that we're going to do that, but that's what I'm going to I'm going to pitch something revolutionary, revolutionary. Let's call it.
I'll pitch something to you right now that's evolutionary rather than revolutionary. My idea is this, and it's just a simple twist on the uh, on the auction format, and it is that rather than eat going around the table nominating guys, you have your auctioneer dip into a hat and pull pull the player's name out. And so you, you don't get to manage your expectations for the auction as an owner throughout the draft, uh, keeping your secret guy secret till the end and getting him for a buck because he might be the fourth guy called and you don't know. And similarly, you don't know if Mike Trout's going to be the first guy called or the 165th. That puts me in mind of um, some years back, I would say around 19, around the turn of the century, turn of the millennium, um, I played a bunch of us who had played together for many years. Um, we're talking about the problem of the pricing of everybody like bidding $1 more and that you would sit at the table. And if you were the most successful owner, like the, the bad guys would steal your guys for, they would just keep upping you $1 more because they knew that they couldn't be too out of line. If you were there, And we came up with a game that, which, um, was created in, in a Popeye's restaurant in Times Square. Um, so we, uh, we called it the Popeye League. And the, everybody got a, a um, post-it notes. And it was kind of like playing Indian poker. You, the name, somebody would be nominated, and then you would write down your number, and then you would hold it up to your forehead. And everybody would look at everybody else, and then the person who spent paid the most Got him, and if there was a tie, then the two teams would face off, and they would, oh, cool. they would do it again. Um, it was incredibly f- fun. It was a, it wasn't a regular rotisserie lineup. It was like a mixed team, ten or twelve team mixed league. So um, the prices were not didn't seem set in stone. There were there weren't price guides for it, um, and there was incredibly funny and interesting things that happened the first year, which I won, um, and then the second year it got people recognized what the prices were like and, and it became a little more, um, just a little more standardized. And by the third year, everybody was, there were constantly ties. Everybody knew what everybody was worth in the format and um, it, stopped being, it stopped being as much fun. It was, just became more like a regular draft and we felt like we'd made our point and we moved on. But, um, but that is, has kind of the same serendipity of pricing that um, you're talking about in terms of uh, the nomination order. I, f- I, f- I think in a regular fantasy league, in a rotisserie league, everybody knows that Miguel Cabrera is $38, let's say. So if he came out first or if he came out 250th, there were, somebody would have the $38 for him at that point. Um, but I don't know. It would be fun to try it. That's a, that is definitely something we'll we'll put in the in the um, in the hopper. Yeah, and I think the interesting part of it is you might think I'm going to save my $38 for Miguel Cabrera, and if, but if he comes out as the fourth last guy, you're you're really facing some problems along the way getting there to make sure that you save your $38, especially if you suspect somebody else is saving $38 as well. And now do I need to save $39 because I know this guy's saving 38 and so forth? Yeah, I think it could be pretty interesting. Uh, right, that, that's ex- that is exactly the, the challenge would be... Um holding out knowing there's only one guy and if two guys are saving up for it it's uh that way that could be funny and now uh, speaking of fun uh, this year tout has added a daily game through the fan duel the tout experts are playing every friday in a private league i think around 35 or so teams uh, the first couple of weeks what was the thinking behind taking tout into the daily game money kind of was um was the thinking it seemed to me that the the daily games were advertising all over the place 
and that we the Tell Wars was an advertising opportunity that um, they would ha- have to embrace, and uh, and it was a way for to us address. We, we talked when we were talking about Tout X, we talked about maybe coming up with a daily format, and that was part of the thinking was well, let's experiment with some daily ideas that um, can get the daily roster mechanism in place with. Um, in in a new in a new game that isn't just the the daily game and and we that seemed overly ambitious on the in the time frame we had which is how we ended up um, moving to Chandler Park but um, we but then we talked about actually bringing in a daily game um, I worked with uh, Todd Zola and Todd contacted all the daily players and asked them if they might be interested in sponsoring a game where there would be prize money for the touts and some money to help Tout Wars pay its bills. And, um, and they, were, uh, they were enthusiastic, and FanDuel um, moved the fastest. I, I think um, we had multiple points of interest, but um, FanDuel was able to do the deal before we got too far into spring training. And, um, and so we have partnered with them, and uh, they actually proposed the the uh, schedule of one day a week play and um, in five groups of four weeks and the, the top three teams in each of those four weeks will um, go into a championship round which will be one week at the end of uh, end of August and there'll be re- there's little prize money from week to week and then there's the real grand prize of a thousand dollars at the end of the end of the process which is um, which for um, for my thinking, we ask a lot of the touts to help pay for the maintenance of the league, and by bringing in some outside money, we're going to be able to um, ramp that back a little bit and still keep the level of services up that we that we we're getting to in terms of the draft rooms and the and the maintenance people and all of that stuff, um, and and you know keep it fun for people and try and make it a little less onerous for the actual touts, and if they win money. You know, even better. So much the better, indeed. Uh, Peter, do you play daily fantasy baseball at all outside of Tub Wars? I should say, a, a guy who's trying to start his own daily game last September called me and asked me if I would play his game against his customers um, one in sometime in September, and I did. Um, and I found it. Uh, I hadn't tried it. I have to say, when I first learned about the daily game, I thought it just seemed terribly arbitrary. Um, and so that the, in any individual day, the, the luck factor is huge. Um, so that didn't seem that interesting. Um, as it's gone along and I've talked to more people who play, um, it, turns, it turns out actually that the luck factor, if you, play, if you played every day, your edge every day in your knowledge would in theory give you an edge, the same type of edge you have during the year playing against other people. Um, that's that's kind of interesting. The problem then becomes like setting your roster every day using your knowledge is um, is like uh, all the work you do in the preseason before a regular rotisserie league. You're doing every day rather than right. um, rather than enjoyably in February and March. And um, so I haven't gotten into that grind. But I did play opening day. Fanduel ran a contest where um, Todd Zola and I played. Um, against their customers, and we, um, and I finished fifth in of uh, I think two hundred 
players or 250 players. So that that was very exciting, and I've played um, in the, in our weekly daily game, and I played, and I now have an account, and I've played a, a few times at FanDuel and a few times at DraftKings, and um, I've and I've noticed that when I really work hard setting my lineup, I, I've been doing okay, and when I like just sort of go in and throw things together, I've I've done poorly. I don't know. It's um. It, it's uh, it's all brand new and uh, and having the contest resolve in the in that one night is is actually um, it's kind of like exciting like in the American Dream League last night my, yesterday my team did really well I jumped 13 points and I soared into first place and in Tau Wars I my team lost 14 points yesterday um, thanks to Tom Kohler and and I'm, and I dropped into last place and um, it's kind of like those feelings. Only um, there's so far my balance has been going up. So that um, I'll, I'll stop talking about it now. But it's it's actually funner than I expected it to be. It is. I, I uh, ever since the uh, tow wars, I got in on that and. Um, what what I find interesting is exactly the same thing. I've also opened an account and I play in the very small leagues, and I'm slightly ahead, maybe four or five dollars, I think, over the f- five or six times I've tried it. And and I think it may, if you totaled up the hours of work, you'd be way better off playing the season long v- version because it's all kind of condensed into March, and then for the rest of the year, you're just kind of glancing around once a week to do your moves. And and what definitely the appeal here is that. Playing the season-long game, you can be, you know, going along. Everything can be great, and then you have Travis Darno go down, and you're and you're out of catcher, and it's and you know, then something else happens, and totally outside of your control. And there is absolutely no way to really fix those things that that kill you in the daily game. Even if you screw up, if you you know, roster two guys from a game that's rained out, you're. Um, the next day you have another chance, you have a clean slate to, to play again. And, um, and I think that a lot of the appeal is that, that you're not, um, you're not stuck basically shepherding a wounded warrior to the, the finish line, which is, which happens to, you know, a, a certain percentage of regular rotisserie league teams every year. Um, there's, there's just no recovery from certain things. And that's, that's definitely the downside in the, in the season-long format. We've had some commentaries here at Baseball HQ Radio in Master Notes. Uh, we've had some of our guests talk about this issue as well, and it's the coexistence of Daily Fantasy with the full-season formats. Peter, you've been around this game for a very long time, and you know all about it. What do you think will be the long-term fates of these two formats? Can they coexist, or will, will Daily eventually swamp over the full-season format? I, I think there's um, there's a role for the for the season long format um, as uh, the way I describe it is as kind of the weekly poker game of of um, of fantasy sports that the people playing rotisserie style they they have a live in person auction at the beginning of the season they um, you know they study they they're fascinated with not only the you know the top twenty rookies but the deeper, you know, top ten, top fifteen rookies in every farm system. Those those players are still going to play um, season long, and they're going to play with people who um, they'll play in keeper formats, they'll play um, in dynasty formats, they'll play um, with people who, if they're not their friends when they start, are they going to be their friends twenty years down the road when they're still playing? Because 
that's a different game, and it's, it's and that's a game that's not so much about the gambling as it is about the the uh, life experience of playing with um, playing with your friends, playing with people who respect the game and and treat it, um, you know, very uh, serious seriously, not in the not in the sense of being serious about it, but they they are rigorous about their um, their skills and their in, involvement with the game. That's that's a totally different experience than. Um, the daily game, or even you know, Chandler's monthly format, or anything that comes in between those things, um, that's a different game, and it's and it is it rewards baseball skills and scouting skills and preparation just as much, but um, but it, it's not as socially conducive. It's not as conducive to um, you know sitting around a room live and and uh, spending the best day of the year. Which is usually a beautiful April day or late March day, um, in a in the basement of some bar or somebody's office or something, um, drafting your team. That's that's a different experience, and um, the two will coexist, I think, for forever. Amen to that. Uh, Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer from AskRoderman.com and Tout Wars. And Peter, you're also a co-founder and very frequent contributor to the music discussion website, RockRemnants.com. Uh, you recently had a story about a guy who recorded a bunch of guitar players trying out new guitars. What did you like about that piece? <laughs> I, I just thought it was, I just thought it was, um, I thought it was a great idea. Um, listening to it, it's, you don't want to listen to all of it, I don't think. But um, the idea of this guy, who is in a band, is a you know a known musician of, of uh, you know some midland repute. Um, I didn't know him before he did this. He um, would go into the guitar center store and um, wearing these headphone microphones that were kind of directional. That were very directional spy microphones. He called them, and he would. And he, would, he carried around a book that was like learning to play guitar, so that he he didn't look like he was spying on people as a, as some sort of expert or something. And he would just hang out and record people as they sat trying out the different guitars. And in a store, in a, in a big box store full of instruments, there's lots of seepage. So he would end up with lots of people playing with with each other by accident. They were listening to themselves, but they were the room was filling up with. Um, noise and it's uh, it's kind of engaging and and um, and framed as songs. They're uh, they're little I won't call them jewels, but they're but they are worth listening to um, and trying out. And I I posted about it just because I thought it was a, a fun art project um, and and an interesting idea in terms of what performance is in, in in a music store, which is when you go to music stores on 47th Street in New York. There are really good players trying out really expensive guitars. The Guitar Center is a little different experience, but it's the same kind of idea. People trying out their chops, working on things, um, and, and sometimes just showing off a little bit. And uh, it, was, it was a good, fun piece to do. It's certainly interesting, and I wonder, Peter, did you listen to the whole thing, and did anybody try Stairway to Heaven? Um, I, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I didn't hear could be in there. It probably is, but I, I, didn't, I didn't hear it. Some uh, Jackson Five stuff that I posted, which I thought was um, tuneful. Some of it was um, just downright um, discordant and and uh, weird. You usually write about bands and songs. What have you been writing about lately at RockRemnants.com? I was always posting something at night, and 
Steve Moyer, who posts from time to time, said he really hated the idea of calling those posts night music. So I, I thought I'd try not calling them night music. Once I did that, then it sort of took the obligation for me to post every night. And so I've been, I've been a less frequent contributor recently. I did discover last, last week that uh, Rock Remnant's favorites, the Upper Crust, are coming to New York City and they're going to be playing on Thursday night. So I have a gang of people who are going to go see the Upper Crust. Please, sir, may I have some more rock? They're a um, Boston band. They dress up in pre-French Revolution um, garb with long white wigs. They're kind of like the Colbert of, of rock remnants. They pretend to be the most effete ruling class people, and then they play songs like Let Them Eat Rock. And they, sound, they sound kind of like ACDC with a uh, economic critique built into the format. They say there's people starving, dropping down dead in the street. Upper Crust and Let Them Eat Rock. A while ago, Peter, you wrote about some older stuff, including the Rolling Stones, Wild Horses, and even something about the Love and Spoonful. What's the interest in the, that older music? Rock Remnant started from um, conversations that Moyer and, and uh, Gene McCaffrey and, and Lar Michaels and, and Patrick, you've been in some of those, these discussions, and Mike Fenger had about um, out in Arizona during the Arizona Fall League. And um, they were far-ranging, and they, you'd sit around with guys of a similar age, and you talk about the shows you saw, the music you listened to when you were, um, when you were like coming of age, and but also when you think about it, it goes back to music that you heard when you were when you were just a kid, and so the Loving Spoonful, the first albums I got for um, Christmas, the first 
pop albums I got for Christmas were the Love and Spoonful's Greatest Hits and Herman's Hermit's Greatest Hits. And um, Herman's Hermit's was defective, and I brought it back, and they didn't have one, and I and I swapped it for uh, Snoopy and the Red Baron by the Royal Guardsmen, which um, <laughs> which I just loved, <laughs> and which had um, the Battle of New Orleans and uh, the Wooly Bully. It was a it was a goofy goofy record with a Snoopy song on it that um, as a whatever as a nine or ten year old I just couldn't get enough of. Anyway, so. Writing about the old, those old things is often a, is a window back into memories about what was happening then, or how you felt, or how the music made you feel, or you know some funny story or interesting bit of trivia about the way the music was recorded or the, the person who wrote it. So we've you know I've I've tried to write um, personal obituaries for people who who died and and um, and when. Milestones come up. Write about stuff. That's been my approach to um, writing for Rock Remnants. It's it's kind of it's my personal diary of of what I'm listening to, of what I've um, found of value, things that I've come across that um, made me laugh. And uh, some of that is old music. I try like hell to to find new music that is is engaging. But with but the newer music, it you don't have a history with it yet. So it's it's. Sometimes it just catches you as ear candy, or it reminds you of something that you heard before, and it's really easy to go back to the old stuff. So hopefully we end up with a mix of, of the different eras and the different takes and different approaches to appreciating you know, what is a very wide, wide um, palette of, of pop and rock and soul and rhythm and blues and, and some jazz, and, and we get all, I hope we, you know, are able to get all of that in from time to time. In an interesting way, it kind of reflects how a lot of us got into uh, about writing about fantasy baseball because it's something we enjoy and it's something, because we enjoy it, we like to think and write about it. And certainly that was my path to it. And uh, it seems like what you guys do at Rock Remnants is very much the same thing. It's a it's a thing, music is something you really enjoy and, and a natural outgrowth for people like you and me and, and all the guys at Rock Remnants is when we like something, we like to think and write about it. And it's got to be a very interesting uh, uh, outlet for you to accomplish that. And when you were talking about the importance of those old songs when you were 10, 11 years old, uh, it, it's funny. You know, people say that your memory can be triggered by smells, but and I'm sure that's true, but I find my memories often triggered by certain songs from my past. And uh, just give you one quick example. When I was a young man, I was hitchhiking my way around Ireland, and I ended up in this uh, in this private hostel. It was just a bungalow house, and uh, and there was a bunch of Swiss kids and me up in this uh, little place called Glen Column Kill in Donegal County in Ireland. And uh, we had very little in common. They didn't speak much English. I spoke no German or Swiss German or, or any of the languages they spoke, a smattering of shared French. And uh, the one thing that happened that kind of got me on side with them was one of the kids pulled out a guitar as kids of that age are wont to do and started playing Norwegian wood by the Beatles only he didn't know the words but I knew the words so he played the guitar and I sang the song and and uh, you know there's a bunch of people sitting around and every time I hear Norwegian wood I flash back on a very very pleasant memory for me from from my childhood or my my young manhood that's a great story I like that and that puts me in mind of I when I was in high school Maybe in junior high school or or ninth grade or so, my friend across the street and I biked over to Fire Island to the National Seashore and to camp out. 
And while we were there, we met a guy who had a guitar, and um, and he taught us how to sing harmonies on um, on uh, on Nowhere Man, and um, and it was, and that's like I now when I think of Fire Island, I think of Nowhere Man for some reason. Like it was just sitting around the fire, campfire with a guy playing guitar, trying to get us to sing harmonies, which I don't. I, my recollection is we weren't any good at, but um, but it was indelible. It, it, it's the, the song, the place, the whole thing. And you saying that, Peter, reminds me of a story. I was out with a friend of mine once at Long Beach on Vancouver Island. It's a beautiful national park, a Canadian national park. And uh, we were down on the beach. And again, there was a bunch of European kids who were backpacking their way across Canada. And they were on their way to Australia from there. And uh, again, some kid pulls out a guitar and we're trying to figure out, are there any songs we all know? And bizarrely, the songs that everybody knew, including these European kids, were uh, TV theme show jingles. Gilligan's Island, we all sang Gilligan's Island, the Brady Bunch, and they knew every word. Some of them barely spoke English, but they, but you know, they knew the Brady Bunch song and Gilligan's Island, all, all the verses and stuff like that. Really magical times, and uh, music does such a great job of bringing that out. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and Wars and RockRemnants.com. And Peter, back to baseball. During the season, we uh, ask our experts to talk about studs and duds for the year, studs being the guys you're interested in, duds being the guys you don't want to have on your roster and if you don't mind we'll start with some hitters in the american league who's your stud hitter a guy you've got your eye on the guy who's um stood out to me this year is adam laroche i was guy changing leagues a somewhat older guy i was a little concerned that he was moving to a better park but he's he's been stellar he's a solid producer easy to overlook in some ways um He's off to a great start. I don't want to oversell that, but um, I don't think there's much chance of there being an adjustment problem. He's going to be very, very solid, and um, and um, just like the way he looks uh, compared to the way I was thinking about him two weeks ago. He is off to a hard start, a hot start, as you say. Uh, how about in the National League? Who's a hitter you've really thought has got off to a good start or that you'd like to add to your roster if you could? Well, the guy, the guy all spring that I was, I was saying that I was overvaluing all spring was Freddie Freeman. And people would say, yeah, but the lineup is so terrible and he's not that good. He's not that good a power hitter. And, and I would say, well, yeah, but he's, he's really good hitter and he's, and he's only 25 and he's done so much already. And uh, there's some growth potential there. So he's, he's also off to a great start. And, I, and the Braves are showing, you know, that once again, like what looks like a terrible, terrible team might really be a terrible, terrible team, but they're still going to score some runs. They're, st- they're not going to be shut out all the time. And Freddie Freeman is a guy who I think was run down a little bit in the preseason who's showing that he's going to be fine this year. He's, he may not end up being as elite as if he were playing on a team that, was, that had a great offense, but he'll be okay. Better than expected. That was what I was getting at. Better than expected. And, um, than the general opinion was. It's going to be as good as I thought he was going to be, which is um, high regard on my on my part. Moving over to the dud side of the equation, how about an American League hitter you think is probably not going to be somebody you have any interest in rostering via trade or free agency or any other way? Somebody I did roster, um, Shin Su Chu, is not showing much. And I, I want to say again, I don't want to read too much into, um, into the... Uh, um, into the small sample we have so far, 
but after his injuries last year and this year he's 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 not lighting it up and um there is some concern a lot of concern on my part that he's just not going to be um he's not ever going to be the hitter again that he was 2 years ago or 3 years ago and that um he just doesn't he doesn't look that lively right now and and that's a concern He's over 30, which I think surprises some people when they realize he's hasn't been around baseball as long as you might expect for a guy that age. But, of course, he had so many years uh, playing over in Korea. A couple of years ago in Tout Wars, he was a very expensive pick because of his on-base percentage skills, and that died out that very year. And uh, you're right, ever since then, Shinsu Chu has been more of a disappointment than a surprise. Uh, National League dud hitter? The, the duds in the National League, um, I had a hard time... Ch- Choosing one of them, but they're all old. They're all old guys who used to be kind of elite and um, who are off to terrible starts. I and I'm, I'm speaking specifically about Aramis Ramirez, Marlon Byrd, Chase Utley, all off to terrible starts. There, there are always injury problems with at least Ramirez and Utley in recent years. And there, it's good to remember the guys who get into their mid 30s can still perform pretty well. They don't necessarily fall off a ton right away but they do fall off at some point they are going to fall off they're going to, their careers are going to end you'd have to be worried about guys like that especially if they're hitting like a buck 38 or whatever at least hitting right now um so i those are those are guys who are off to terrible start who are going to they're going to get a little better but i wouldn't count on them for a complete recovery have you ever seen any research on whether uh, older players or younger players are better at rebounding from slow starts? I think it would be an interesting thing to look at. That, that's interesting. I've never looked at it as an in-season thing. I've done lots of work with aging patterns. And the, the thing that most interested me, that, that I found most illuminating about um, aging, was that if you, if you take a look at the whole population of players, um, the, as the younger players jump up very quickly as they as they become regulars and that they there's a peak of average production around 26 27 28 and that that stays fairly flat until you get into the early 30s and then there's a little bit of a drop off but in fact if you look at the players who actually play there's almost no drop off until those those players they they stay at that same level until they stop playing and that they're they don't gradually decline through their um, 30s. They they play until they aren't as, until they're replaceable by somebody who's 25, who's just as good, and then they're replaced. They they disappear off the chart. And um, I would think in season there's a similar dynamic that guys who um, if you're Aramis Ramirez and you're you're slowed down, you'll keep your job for a month or two, and then they're going to say, you know, we've got. We've got this guy in the minor leagues. We're gonna we're gonna try out, and because uh, we're not going anyplace anyway, and and Aramis Ramirez just stops. I'm not saying that's gonna happen this year, but it's um, I think that is the that's the the pattern is if you don't if you can't do it to the level that you need to do it, you beat you're replaced. You don't um, just unless you're Derek Jeter, you don't <laughs> sort of slowly decline.
And you have to trust to a certain extent the, the people who are making money and million dollar decisions about whether these players ought to be in the lineup or on the and on the field or whether they should be uh, put out to pasture. And and a lot of times teams get that right. And that might be one of those situations where you need to look at the organization making the decision if it's got a track record of making poor decisions as the Phillies have over the last few years. Then maybe you might think that they're holding on to Chase Utley for reasons that don't pass muster if he was playing for a better team or a better front office. Uh, Peter, let's move over to the mound uh, in the American League. Who's a stud pitcher you'd like to have on your roster? Well, I have Shane Green by good fortune um, on my roster. I wasn't as high on him as some people were during the um, preseason. I I mean, I saw some potential, but I also saw, uh, I didn't see him getting off to the start he has gotten off to, and, um, and I've Looked at him a little more closely, and I, he's he's for real. I mean, he's obviously going to give up more than one run every three starts, but um, going forward, but uh, he looks awfully good, and um, I'm glad to have him on my team. Um, it was uh, I paid two dollars for him in the at the, at the very end game, and um, and it it was very fortunate. How about a National League stud pitcher? Well, on a slightly different take, um, Archie Bradley, I'm focused on because he he was. He struggled last year in the minor leagues. He had a good spring training. Um, he is—he's one of these um, prospects who some people love love him to death. Some people thought he didn't quite have enough stuff to become more than a three or four pitcher. Um, I'm not sure that he's going to be more than a three, let's say, or a four. But I—he had a—he was called up. Um, I—I I busted the bank to buy him in Tal Wars because I desperately needed some some uh, major league pitchers and he threw a nice first game and we'll we'll see he does have great skills he has uh, great pitches if he can uh, muster a little bit of control and and uh, and command um there's no reason to think that he couldn't put that together this year he seems to be putting it together this year and that's why i listed him here and now to the duds on the mound in the american league who's a pitcher you want no part of well i i have a little i own a little of jared weaver and um as a keeper in the x f in the x f l and um and it's he's very very skilled but his his career arc is going much the same way as his brother he's gone from being a not exactly a flamethrower but throwing hard enough with a, enough um moxie and he just doesn't have the velocity anymore and um and it, he's subject to getting creamed when things don't go exactly right um the memory of him being, you know, one of the best pitchers in the American League is is just that a memory, um, and I think if you own him or you have to be very careful about him at this point, he could be falling off the cliff as as we speak. Yeah, he went from being a sort of a, a power pitcher to being a really successful finesse pitcher for a lot of years. Uh, our mutual friend Gene McCaffrey pointed out once on Baseball HQ Radio that Jared Weaver had a, uh, an absolute skill of inducing pop-ups, uh, infield fly-type pop-ups, and uh, he said that we tend to generally regard those as lucky or fluky, but he did it for seven years in a row, and he, and he made the excellent point. If a guy does something for seven straight years, we have to start thinking he's doing it on purpose. And now he's not really doing much of anything along those lines, and he's getting by more on guile than he is on anything else. And uh, in the in the long run, I don't think that's a recipe for success. Uh, finally, Peter, how about in the National League, a dud pitcher? Kyle Kendrick is exactly the wrong type of pitcher to have in Colorado, and um, 
lots of contacts. He throws strikes, but he 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 doesn't get a lot of pop ups, and um, and it's um, that's just a disaster. So uh, there's no everybody knows it. There's no eye opener there, but um, but he, it's he's just a disaster. And he did have that first you know first good game this year, which um, is he can do from time to time. But uh, there's not a fantasy fix there in, in Colorado. So Peter Kreutzer from Ask Rotoman has his studs, Adam LaRoche, Freddie Freeman, Shane Green, and Archie Bradley. His duds are Shinsu Chu, all those old guys in the National League, Jared Weaver and Kyle Kendrick. Uh, Peter, this has been great. Tell us where listeners can read more from Peter Kreutzer. Well, I'm found most uh, most likely I'm at uh, patentandco.com, um, writing along with a lot of other people about um, players and events in the in the baseball news every day, organized by players. If you have questions about a particular player, you can put it there, and you're going to get an answer from somebody, uh, maybe me, maybe Alex, maybe um, some of the other really, really smart writers who hang out there and, and talk about baseball and their fantasy teams. Um, and then I, I write from time to time at AskRotoman.com and at RotomansGuide.com, and uh, we'll be doing so all season. And do you have a Twitter account? I do, um, at K-R-O-Y-T-E. I, I presume you use uh, Twitter to promote when you've added an article here, there, or somewhere? Everything that I that I posted, the Rotoman addresses or um, at Rock Remnants, it gets tweeted about. I also, I, I tweet about, um, I, I tweet about the Daily Game. I have engaged with, uh, for some reason, with Mike Gianella a lot on Twitter and uh, Steve Gardner and, and some of those guys. Um, we end up having conversations on Twitter, which is really kind of weird but um but it's it's a fun place to be from time to time i i find it overwhelming as a as a feed all day so i don't i'm not a i i go search for stuff there more than than uh hang out peter thanks very much for joining us it was a real pleasure we'll talk with you again during the year i'm sure thanks for having me patrick anytime Peter Kreutzer is a longtime fantasy player and authority, the co-founder of Tout Wars and the commissioner of Tout Wars Mixed League, also the editor of the annual Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine, and he answers fantasy baseball questions, as you heard, at patentandco.com, askrotoman.com, and on his Twitter feed sometimes. Next up, our HQ commentaries, the playing time and frequent flyer comments coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. The season is underway, and BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with features like our Playing Time Today coverage. This week, looking at ramifications of the Mets losing both Travis Darno and Jerry Blevins. Our starting pitcher buyer's guide, Stephen Nickrand, looks at early season extreme performances by Trevor Bauer, Clay Buchholz, John Lester, Jimmy Nelson, and more than a dozen others. Our daily call-ups report has already covered newly arrived big leaguers like Mets catcher Kevin Plowecki and, of course, Cubs third baseman Chris Bryant. Spoiler alert, he's really good. 
We have all that great information and much more. Our performance validation in facts and flukes, roster coverage in playing time today and playing time tomorrow, daily matchups, team coverage, our projections and our game management tools, all updated daily to help you get ready to dominate your league. And it's all in one place, the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Tuesday commentaries. We have the frequent flyer comment coming up, and leading off, it's the playing time report, where we look at situations that could mean changes in which players could be getting more chances or riding the pine. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at how Scott Van Slyke's power could find its way into the Los Angeles lineup. There's a lot of talent on the Dodgers team this year, and their outfield is no different. L.A. entered the season with Yasiel Puig, Carl Crawford, and Jock Peterson as the starting trio, with Andre Ethier and Scott Van Slyke coming off the bench. Uh, but, but Crawford's a walking injury waiting to happen. Puig has been dealing with a hamstring issue this year, and while Peterson's off to a decent start in his rookie year, his shaky contact rate in the minors could lead to some prolonged uh, slumps at some point uh, this year in the majors. Scott Van Slyke is the one to speculate on here. Uh, Van Slyke has huge power. Last season he had 185 power index, so 85% better than the league average, and 174 expected power index, which is based on his hard hit ball data. Um, those numbers are among the best you'll see for power. He was given 25 home run upside in this year's baseball forecaster. Uh, Van Slyke mashes against lefties. Um, he may be limited to a platoon role, uh, but it's worth noting that Van Slyke did get the start against Colorado righty Eddie Butler on Sunday, April 19th. Van Slyke went deep, and he hit two doubles in that game. So there's a chance he could get more playing time against righties moving forward. Um, there's also a, a, a chance if the outfield doesn't work out, Van Slyke's the, the, probably the top backup at first base for the Dodgers. Uh, now Adrian Gonzalez is tearing the cover off the ball right now, but he's in his mid-30s. You never know. Either way, if there's room on your roster and you need some power, and you probably do given today's environment, take a look and see if Scott Van Slyke's around. Acquiring him now could pay off big time later this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every Tuesday. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and poised to deliver big returns. Here with a look at Giants catcher Andrew Susak and pitcher Chris Heston and Mets catcher Kevin Ploiecki, is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Last week, we featured three players who have largely been ignored by fantasy owners in 2015. Miguel Gonzalez, Bruce Rondon, and Archimedes Camonero. Gonzalez won both the starts since the program aired, including a 10-strikeout performance against the New York Yankees on April 14th. So in the second edition, we have three more frequent flyers for you to consider, beginning with San Francisco's Andrew Susak, who was recalled from AAA on April 18th when Giants pitcher Jake Peavy was placed on the 15-day DL. Susak performed well at his 35-game call-up in the second half of 2014, batting 273 with three home runs and only 88 at-bats. Chances are Susak would be a starter on most major league teams, but... Even with Buster Posey entrenched as a giant starter, Suzak could still be a valuable fantasy contributor at an already scarce position. 
Another golden opportunity for fantasy owners may lie in picking up San Francisco pitcher Chris Heston, who has only allowed two runs and three starts, resulting in an eye-popping .87 ERA and .97 whip in only 20 innings pitched. Heston's strong start isn't surprising, though, given how effective he was after the All-Star break last season at AAA, where he posted a 2.25 ERA and a .97 whip in nine starts. With Heston's base performance value, as provided by BaseballHQ.com, in excess of 100, currently registering a 107, his numbers might indicate some long-term success despite an extremely small sample size thus far this season. Keep in mind that Heston is already significantly outperforming his projected BPV of 52 for 2015, so some regression might not be out of the question. Just remember, Heston and her other frequent flyers are long shots that may be worth a flyer in your league. Finally, our last frequent flyer for the week is the Mets' top catching prospect, Kevin Pilecki, who was recalled on Sunday after Travis Darno fractured his hand. Pilecki bad 309 with 11 home runs through two levels in the minors last season, and 2014 was only his second full season in the minors. After playing in the Futures game at Target Field, it appeared that all Pilecki needed was an opportunity. Now he has that opportunity. And here's your opportunity to add these players before the rest of your league does. Andrew Susak, Chris Heston, and Kevin Pilecki are our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 19 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Tuesday edition of the show, Peter Kreutzer. Peter's one of the real nice guys in a business full of real nice guys. And I want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular news and notes edition featuring Todd Zola. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.